Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 5, Toulon. It was in Toulon where my reputation began. Napoleon Bonaparte. Well, folks, we've made it. Five episodes in, and we're finally about to embark on the military career of Napoleon Bonaparte. The good stuff, if you will. I want to start off by thanking all my listeners who have tuned in over the previous four episodes. Honestly, it's been quite humbling to see so many of you tuning in to listen to this story arc of such an incredible human being. And I hope you will continue to join us over the next coming weeks because we're about to embark on an adventure that at times seems to whiz past history and into the realm of legend. And that legend begins today with the battle that introduces Napoleon to Europe and indeed the world, the Siege of Toulon. Now as a quick aside, I am going to do an episode later in this series discussing the military strategy of Napoleon and his generals, specifically regarding many of the innovations he implemented into his army, which was able to make their fighting force so formidable. But I won't do that today, as I don't want to give away too much too soon. But just know that once we enter the latter part of the 1790s, you can be sure that we will discuss all of Napoleon's tactics, as well as his generals. So military strategy buffs out there, don't worry, I haven't forgotten you. But for this episode, we'll use terminology that will make it, hopefully, easy for everyone to follow along, as well as to introduce us with what's to come. So without further delay, let's take a quick trip down to southern France. And pretty convenient timing for our story, because we last left our friend Napoleon on his way out of Corsica in June of 1793. He and his family, now essentially political refugees, sailed for France and landed in Toulon, settling in the small village of La Valette, just outside the port city. Napoleon's modest salary and Letizia's life savings were really all that would now be able to support a family of nine in a foreign land to the vast majority of them. Now... For those who don't have a great grasp on France's geography, Toulon is a major port city in the modern southeastern French province of Provence. Located around a small bay in the Mediterranean Sea, Toulon was, and still is, a critically strategic outpost for both maritime trade and naval projection. And indeed, the modern French Navy's flagship, the aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle, is stationed there at her home port. Now, while Toulon is probably better known today as a tourist destination for her beautiful weather, wine, and historic landmarks, during the height of the French Revolution, she was a vitally important strategic port for the French Navy. And this was especially true as the War of the First Coalition began to intensify. Then, as now, controlling it meant that any goods and supplies flowing into southern France would be regulated by whoever laid claim to the port city. So as such, eyes from around revolutionary France and Europe began to ire up as a means of tilting the balance of power in the Revolution. To summarize, to hold Toulon was a pretty big deal. While all of this planning was unfolding, Napoleon left his family on the outskirts of Toulon and rejoined his French artillery regiment in the city of Nice. And while we mentioned that Napoleon had essentially been labeled AWOL, no longer a soldier, by the French military commission, so many French officers were fleeing the country as emigres that they were completely desperate to keep as many as they could. So with the assistance of fellow refugee Salicetti, 
Napoleon escaped punishment and even received a commission to the Army of Italy before again being transferred to the Army of the South under General Jean-Francois Carteau. Carteau, in a sign of just how desperate the situation was among the military leadership, was a painter by profession and had never led an army into combat. However, Carteau would lead a successful siege of the city of Avignon near Toulon from anti-Jacobin forces, inspiring writing of one of Napoleon's greatest literary works, Le Super de Bouquet. The work, in a very brief overview, while also showing just how Jacobin Napoleon had become, revolves around a soldier who berates his fellow diners for their disloyalty to the Republic, implying that the French must support the Jacobin leadership in Paris, lest France be taken over by a vengeful European aristocracy hell-bent on purging the revolutionary factions and restoring the monarchy. The work was widely popular among the revolutionary elite. Among those who read it and aimed to have it published on a wide scale were Salicetti, now a government administrator in Provence, Toulon's home province, remember that, and one Augustine Robespierre, brother to a certain Maximilian Robespierre, who just so happened to be recently selected as the head of the Committee of Public Safety. Augustine was beside himself that a young rising soldier would write such a piece, now showing how loyal many in the military had become to the revolutionary cause. And so it was these two relationships, among others, that would give Napoleon the backing he needed to spearhead the meteoric rise that he was destined for. And once again, just in time, because things are about to hit the fan in southern France. Now, if we rewind a little bit and remember episode three, we'll recall that in June of 1793, about two months prior to where we are in this episode, the Girondins were purged from the National Convention, which sparked further uprisings throughout France known as the Federalist Revolts. These revolts were sparked by the increasing radicalization of the convention, i.e. it was becoming too Jacobin, and many of the provincial cities believed they were not being represented adequately, or rather, at all. All the power was in Paris, and thus centralization was also at the heart of the issue. In any event, these riots further divided the French public, and the military, which was already concerned with invading foreign armies and counter-revolutionary uprisings in the peripheral provinces, became increasingly stretched thin across multiple fronts. And you can bet that the coalition forces sensed an opportunity here, and wouldn't you know it, they did. Because one of those cities who decided a riot in response to the Girondin purge was, you guessed it, Toulon. Now, just to clarify, the Federalist revolts were not royalist revolts. That is, they themselves were not calling for the monarchy to be restored. They just wanted the Jacobins to get the hell out of Dodge and to tone down the radicalization that was going on in the central government. But to the Jacobins, and again, this is at the start of the Reign of Terror, anyone who wasn't a Jacobin was an enemy of the Republic. And so in Toulon, most of these fédérés, as they were known, were able to evict the majority of the Jacobin leadership in the city. But they soon found themselves quickly overrun by royalist factions. And with Toulon so close to the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, this posed a massive problem for any revolutionaries in the city, moderate or not. Further amplifying the problem for Toulon was the recapture of some of the Federalist cities, specifically Marseille. Now, Marseille had just been recaptured by Carteau's forces, and in a show of revolutionary resolve, the army massacred anyone suspected of being enemies of the state. Royalist, Federalist, you name it. And now that the Royalists had seized majority control of Toulon, a stone's throw from Marseille, they knew that they were next. So, the Royalists in Toulon decided to call for some backup. Heavy backup. Led by Baran d'Imbert, the Royalist forces requested an assistance from two of the most powerful navies in the world at the time, Spain and Britain. 
Under the command of British Admiral Sir Samuel Hood, with the legendary HMS Victory as his flagship, an armada of 13,000 men from Britain, Spain, and Piedmont Sardinia arrived in Toulon at the end of September 1793, and Imbert opened the ports to the foreign navies. He then ordered the raising of the royal standard, the Fleur de Lis, and declared the young Dauphin as King Louis XVII. Arguably the most strategic port in all the French Republic was now suddenly under foreign control, just like that. Now, in addition to the port's vital importance as an import hub, a third of the French Navy was stationed there at the time. So, at the very minimum, it was likely the ships would have been destroyed, but it was also possible, if the Republic was unable to retake Toulon, that the invading fleet would requisition her ships and press them into coalition service, including France's ships of the line. Recapturing Toulon, therefore, became an immediate priority for the newly founded Republic, but to do so would require a nearly flawless plan, because standing in her way was the world's master of the seas, the British Navy. While Carteau was busy readying his forces, Napoleon was promoted to the rank of chef de bataillon, or major, in the 2nd Regiment of Artillery. While on his way to Nice with a convoy of powder wagons, he stopped by Carteau's battalion nearby Olioul to pay his respects to Salicetti, who just so happened to be Carteau's représentant et mission, essentially the political commissioner for the military. Carteau, remember a carpenter by trade, had little experience with artillery and was in desperate need of someone who could man the heavy guns in preparation for an assault. Now, while the responsibility had initially been given to the chief of artillery, Commander Elzier Auguste Cosson de Domartin, Domartin was wounded while retaking Olioul, and thus an opportunity presented itself to Napoleon. No doubt helped by Salicetti's influence, as well as old friend Augustine Robespierre, Napoleon was then thrust upon Domontan's unit to essentially fill in for the recovering commander. Though, not without controversy, as the two men had a general dislike for one another over the fact that Napoleon was only 24 years old at the time. Now, Napoleon would always hold that his military education at Ecoli was the reason for his promotion, but most historians, obviously, point to his political connections as being the most logical reason. Regardless, Napoleon would make the most of this opportunity, further validating his supporters and sending his opponents into quiet fuming. Now, the first order of business that Napoleon needed to address was the lack of artillery and supplies. With two prominent hills overlooking the harbor, gaining the high ground in preparation for an assault on the British naval vessels was of critical importance. Thus, having sufficient cannon, powder, and manpower to move them was his main priority before any attack could commence. Napoleon then began requisitioning equipment and arms from nearby cities, most of them now under Republican control. Guns from Marseille, Avignon, and the nearby Army of Italy were moved to Toulon, and the citizens of Toulon, many now eager to expel the foreign navies, were blackmailed into sending food and animals necessary to move the heavy weaponry. And it's here that we begin to see where Napoleon would display something that would make his future military conquest so brutally effective. Speed. He moved these pieces in a matter of days, using multiple units in order to get gear in place so that they could be ready at a moment's notice. And while previous commanders, see aristocratic ones, likely would have fallen back on traditional tactics, Napoleon knew he needed to get creative in his staging tactics. He worked through the night to have his plan ready and his men prepared for battle. But like most plans, it was not perfect. First off, many of the men in the regiment just didn't know how to use artillery as many were basic infantry soldiers, requiring Napoleon to basically give a crash course on employing, deploying, and firing heavy guns. 
And Napoleon would later remark that his frustrations with the battle readiness of the men was so prevalent that he wasn't as confident with this plan of attack as he would be in future battles. Secondly, Napoleon was dealt a terrible hand in terms of overall leadership. We've mentioned twice now that Carteau was not a capable leader for such an assault, and indeed, Salicetti wrote to the National Convention saying as much, basically requesting that they remove him from command. But Napoleon also personally expressed his concern that other officers in the units were not capable of carrying out his orders, potentially adding delays to his battle plan that needed to be carried out almost flawlessly. This had the added effect of delaying the arrival of soldiers from surrounding cities, requiring Napoleon to quote-unquote recruit retired artillery officers living in Toulon, with a small threat of execution by Augustine Robespierre should they fail to comply. Personal ambition for glory by many of the other officers is often cited as a primary reason for the poor coordination as well, but it's also likely that they were just way in over their heels with a plan of this magnitude. And again, many of them had only recently been promoted due to the exodus of the existing officer corps, so they just didn't have a clue of what exactly needed to be done. Lastly, but certainly most importantly, he just didn't have the adequate amount of supplies necessary to sustain a long-term siege. Napoleon would constantly write back to the convention complaining about the lack of supplies, particularly gunpowder, famously saying, quote, one can remain 24 or, if necessary, 36 hours without eating, but one cannot remain three minutes without gunpowder. Needing to address this, he requisitioned as many guns as possible from the surrounding cities, while also putting up makeshift repair depots in order to maintain the ones that they had. By the end of the siege, Napoleon would come to command over 100 cannons and mortars. These issues notwithstanding, Napoleon was in complete command of the artillery units outside of the city by September. Within days, Napoleon constructed two batteries with revolutionary names, the Mountain and Saint-Culot, in order to begin shelling Hood's boats in the outer harbor. Now, Hood noticed this and had to move the fleet back closer to the port near the city. So after this happened, and if anyone has ever been to Toulon, it becomes readily apparent as to what Napoleon's subsequent plan would be. As I just touched on, there are two main harbors in Toulon, one inner and one outer. Overlooking both of them to the west is a high promontory point known as L'Aiguillette. Now, Napoleon had requested a detachment for Carteau to seize Leguillette, but Carteau, incompetent as ever, only sent a small unit, much to Napoleon's frustration. Now, Napoleon knew that to repel any British attack or foreign invasion, taking this high ground would be vital. From here, he could fire cannon and lay siege to any incoming vessels, cutting off the Royalist forces from resupplying themselves from the sea and allowing the Republican forces to recapture Toulon. But with a smaller unit he received, he was unable to do so, and it also alerted the Allies to their plan. So after a small skirmish at nearby Mount Caire, Napoleon had to retreat. Then in response, the British, also understanding the peak's importance, built a fort on top of the hill known as Fort Mulgrave. So well fortified was Mulgrave that the French gave it the nickname Little Gibraltar. This would also set the Republican forces back two months in their quest to retake the promontory point. We mentioned earlier in the episode that speed was a critical component to Napoleon's successes, but another major aspect of his military genius was his ability to instill motivation into his men. Working, and as we'll come to see, fighting alongside them, Napoleon was able to win his troops over by his, quote, pale and shovel type of demeanor. He was able to instill discipline in them by pushing them to their absolute fullest. 
while preparing for the siege, Napoleon would constantly rail that there wasn't enough gunpowder or not enough cannonballs, just so that his men could furnish more and more and more. He wanted to make sure that he and his men were all well-armed and ready for battle that was going to take place. He generally cared, though. His personal ambition be damned. But he also knew that he couldn't achieve such ambition if he was unable to win this battle. He needed his men armed and ready to win this battle. Because now, as we're about to see, it's action time. In November, Napoleon finally got the break that he needed, though he wouldn't get it immediately. At the start of the month, it became readily apparent that Carteau was just not the man to help lead this expedition. He was sacked and replaced by François Dopé, a doctor by trade. Now, he tried to lead another attack on Fort Mulgrave on the 16th, but was unsuccessful largely due to his own incompetence. Can you sense the theme here? But Napoleon showed considerable personal bravery in this particular assault. At one point, he even picked up a blood-stained ramrod that had been managed by a soldier killed beside him, loading the cannon and firing it. Napoleon would later write that he believed it was this incident that gave him scabies, an illness that would plague him for most of his adult life. But his bravery was not enough to win the day, and Dupay resigned in failure, being replaced, this time, by a real professional soldier and likely saving Napoleon's sanity. This man, General Jacques-Francois Dugomier, saw Napoleon's plan as the only viable option to retake Toulon and finally gave it its full backing. Promoted a major, Napoleon built several more batteries outside of Fort Mulgrave in preparation for the main assault. So exposed was one of these batteries to enemy fire that many of his men refused to be sent there, considering doing so would be suicidal. Napoleon, in just another prime example of his ability to motivate his men by instilling them with courage and inspiration, renamed the battery La Batterie des Hommes Saint-Peur, the Battery of Men Without Fear. Suddenly, there was a line of volunteers ready to fight with no shortage of men. Now, while Mulgrave was obviously the main target of this assault, there was fighting elsewhere around the harbor. The French knew that stretching the Allied forces thin around Mulgrave would be critical to their success in taking the fort. So, with multiple batteries hastily built, the Republican forces began besieging another British garrison, Fort Mobusquet, which was in the northwest part of the harbor. And the Allied forces, understanding what the Republican forces were trying to do, decided to seize the initiative and counterattacked on November 30th. Led by British General Charles O'Hara, the Allies attacked the hastily built French batteries and were successful in repelling their sieging capabilities, even forcing the French to spike their cannons and retreat. But O'Hara, essentially attacking the French center, left both of his flanks open to counterattack, and the French, led in person by both Dugomier and Napoleon, were able to stabilize the French line and drove the Allies back to the fort. O'Hara, amongst all the chaos, was shot through the hand and ended up being captured by the French, forcing his surrender. Now, if the name Charles O'Hara sounds familiar to any of our American listeners, there's actually a pretty good reason. Twelve years before, O'Hara was the man who surrendered to George Washington at the Battle of Yorktown, taking the place of commanding General Charles Cornwallis, who just didn't want to do it himself for his own personal honor. Now, this effectively ended the American War of Independence, 
And it was O'Hara who famously delivered the Sword of Cornwallis to Washington, signaling the end of major hostilities. And now, he got to surrender to Napoleon Bonaparte, being the only man in history to have had the honor of surrendering to both of the famous generals. So, fun fact. Napoleon would later comment that he was inspired by the personal bravery of General Dugomia. He said, quote, He fought with true Republican courage. We recaptured the battery. The guns of the convention were unspiked in sufficient time to increase the confusion of their retreat. Dugomier would also impress Napoleon with one thing Carto was never able to provide him. Men. Now with numbers totaling over 37,000, the Republican forces finally had the numbers necessary to overrun the Allied defenses, and the final preparations were made to retake Fort Mulgrave. Okay, retaking Fort Mulgrave. We finally come to it. Are we ready? Good. At 1 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday, December 17, 1793, Dugomier put Napoleon's plan in action and began the assault. In frigid temperatures and howling wind, rain, and lightning strikes, the first column, led by Commander Claude-Victor Parrain, who would later be named a Marshal of the Empire by Napoleon, by the way, was successful in driving past the first British line of defenses, but unfortunately was stopped at the second. Now, the conditions were such that it made musket fire all but useless, which forced the soldiers to essentially utilize them as clubs. But it was here at 3 a.m. that Dugomia sent in a second column of 2,000 men led by no other than Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon, who had his horse shot from under him when the initial phase of the reinforcement began, led his men in heavy hand-to-hand combat fighting, forcing the men to fight for every inch of territory that they would capture. Napoleon would even be stabbed in the thigh by a bayonet, a wound that missed the main artery on his leg and nearly killed him. So, history was literally inches from being changed forever. But in the early daylight hours, this second assault would be successful, and the French were able to take control of the fort. Wounded, tired, and likely covered in mud and residual gunpowder, Napoleon then began to personally load cannons and fired on the Allied ships in the harbor just as the sun was rising. Now remember, folks, this was one of the first times Napoleon had seen actual combat. We spoke about him putting down riots and small insurrections in the past, but this was true war, country against country, soldier against soldier. Its memories would last with him for the rest of his life. Napoleon later remarked that The image of a Spanish ship exploding under the fire from one of his cannonballs was one he would never be able to shake, recalling, quote, the whirlwind of flames and smoke from the arsenal resembled the eruption of a volcano, and the 13 vessels blazing in the roads were like so many displays of fireworks. The masts and forms of the vessels were distinctly traced out by the flames, which lasted many hours and formed an unparalleled spectacle. Back to me. To be fair to the Allies, it was only two ships that caught fire. And Napoleon, as we'll come to see, was one to exaggerate his war reports and battle records. But, nevertheless, the effort and the effect it had on him was obvious. And for the Allies, the effect was obvious too. The French were taking back Toulon. And by the following morning, the Allies had completely evacuated the city. It was a monumental victory for the new French Republic, and it sent shockwaves throughout Europe. By the following afternoon, the French had established just under 20 guns on Le Guillet, exposing the entire Allied fleet to heavy gunfire. 
After Hood ordered the retreat, he made sure to have small units of British and Spanish soldiers burn any supply depots and French ships to ensure that they could inflict at least some damage before they left the city. However, amid all the chaos, the Allies would allow 18 ships of the line to remain in French hands, a badly missed opportunity to inflict heavier losses and delay any further French advances by the sea. But the lasting image of the Allied retreat was the attempted escape of Royalist forces. Knowing that they would likely face the same reprisals that the surrounding cities received from the Republicans, many Royalists and their families attempted to escape on the fleeing Allied vessels. But in the haste, the Allies could only take so many, and the numerous Royalists jumped into the freezing harbor waters in desperate attempts to evade Republican capture and certain death. Hundreds died via hypothermia and drowning, but thousands more would be left to face the wrath of the Republican army, and face the wrath they would. Over the next two weeks, almost 200 executions were carried out daily against Royalist forces and sympathizers. While Allied propaganda would later use these events as evidence of Napoleon's barbarity, there is no existing evidence that he participated in the massacres. Nevertheless, the message was received loud and clear. The Allies had missed a golden opportunity to destroy the French Navy, cripple their southern flank, and turn the tide of the revolution. Instead, the young republic received vigor and confidence that it could not only halt the foreign invasion, but repel them and outright win the war. But there really was no bigger victor in the Siege of Toulon than Napoleon Bonaparte. After the battle, Napoleon was promoted to Brigadier General at the young age of just 24. Salicetti and Dugomir sent letters of adulation to the convention about his service and his battle plan, giving him further recognition among the revolutionary elite. Quote, among those who most distinguished themselves and who gave me most help in rallying the men and leading them forward were Citizen Bonaparte, Commandant of the Artillery, Ducamier would later write to the War Ministry. And indeed, it was this battle that gave Napoleon the confidence he needed to know that he could lead an army. A short time later, Napoleon was made Inspector of the Coastal Defenses from the Rhone to the Var, an assignment that further validated he could be trusted with high command. And in good order, because now the French, with their newfound vigor, were about to go on the offensive. And as one of the youngest generals in French history, he would be assigned to lead the Republic's newest campaign to crush the Kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, commanding artillery for the famed Army of Italy.